Welcome once again to The Key to All Mythologies, a celebration of slow reading and serious conversation among friends. Today we are beginning our epic journey through hell, purgatory, and heaven, accompanied by Dante the poet, Dante the character created by the poet Dante, with Virgil our guide, and Beatrice, our semi-divine benefactor. We spend most of our conversation today trying to orient ourselves in our strange new world. Why was Dante chosen by divine grace to be the one living soul to pass through hell? And why is Virgil, of all the honored names of the pre-Christian past, his guide? Are the primary goals of this poem theological, aesthetic, ethical, or otherwise? Can such categories even be separated for a work like this, which must rank as the culminating artifact of the high Middle Ages, the culminating artifact of European Christendom? But given that, how do we understand the literalness of hell as Dante depicts it? Are we intended to think of this place as a real place, as real as Florence and Rome, or more like an allegory, or a poetic flight of imagination, or a mystical vision, or something else? Abandon all hope of firm conclusions or easy answers, ye who enter this podcast. Now here is Elijah getting us started by reading the first and second canto. Hello, welcome to the Keto Mythologies. We are beginning our journey through Dante's comedy. We're reading it in the Robert and Jean Hollander translation. I'm going to start out, I'm just going to read the first couple stanzas and then let's talk about our first impressions of this book. So Canto 1, line 1. Midway in the journey of our life, I came to myself in a dark wood, for the straight way was lost. Ah, how hard it is to tell the nature of that wood, savage, dense, and harsh. The very thought of it renews my fear. It is so bitter, death is hardly more so. But to set forth the good I found, I will recount the other things I saw. How I came there, I cannot really tell. I was so full of sleep when I forsook the one true way. But when I reached the foot of a hill, there where the valley ended, that had pierced my heart with fear, looking up, I saw its shoulders arrayed in the first light of the planet that leads men straight, no matter what their road. Then the fear that had endured in the lake of my heart, all the night I spent in such distress was calmed, and as one who, with laboring breath, has escaped from the deep to the shore, turns and looks back at the perilous waters, so my mind, still in flight, turned back to look once more upon the past, no mortal being ever left alive. One place, one thing the footnotes pointed out to me that I had, had not quite put together before, but you have this epic simile, and, and I guess it's the first epic simile of the epic, and uh, it's a swimmer that looks back on a sea after barely surviving and, and considers, you know, the, the body of water that almost swallowed him up. And uh, what the footnotes point out is that this is clearly connecting Dante the pilgrim to Aeneas right who also survives the shipwreck and I hadn't quite put that together but once I read them the footnotes it's like of course <laughs> right um and then Virgil shows up later in the canto but uh, more generally what was your guys's impression of the first three cantos these lines I just read what do you want to think about today so probably the most obvious place to begin is with the eye right and you kind of you pointed out there that he is linking himself in the in the simile to Aeneid to the to Aeneas and the Aeneid and then you have Virgil as his guide and more generally beginning you know midway in the journey of our life 
I came to myself in a dark wood. So you immediately get the R and the I, right? It's like, there's something universal about this experience, but there's also something personal. And I think that's going to be a, I mean, it's kind of obvious, but I also think it's like the way that he is Dante, the poet, I mean, not Dante, I guess we should be careful to distinguish Dante, the, the writer, not Dante, the pilgrim is like marking out a difference between this epic and previous epics. Right. And the way that he wants mm-hmm. to put the, the universal and the individual and the general and the, and the particular together. It's something that we should talk about as we go through. And mm-hmm. I think it's a, I mean, even just beginning an epic with, with I like that is a, was a significant innovation at the, at the time, or kind of like a radical, pretty radical move, I think. Well, in the retrospective, uh, retrospective structure is really important because in some ways, right, this is, and we'll talk at length about this, but this is the, sto- this is the, the story of a conversion, right? The soul moving right through darkness, being purified of sin and purgatory, and then, you know, arriving at love and heaven. It's the story of conversion and conversion tales, right? Thinking of Augustine, <laughs> conversion tales are always retrospective, right? I was there, now I'm here. And even in those first lines, right, he says, I'm thinking back on this and it renews my fear. Mm-hmm. And even lines eight and nine, but to set forth the good I found, I will count the other things I saw. So even at the outset, it's announced as a comedy, something with a happy ending, happy ending. Yeah, and memory is, is foregrounded right there. And then also the beginning of the second, second canto. The first two canto, cantos, should we say with a long A or a short A? I would like, I want to decide now. Cantos or cantos? What's the correct pronunciation? I guess probably. Canto. In American English, it's canto. Okay, I'm going to say canto. So this the... is an American <laughs> podcast, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Uh, the canto. The canto. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> anyway, the, <laughs> the first and second cantos, uh, they, both for, they both foreground memory. Mm-hmm. Um, well, at, at the beginning of the second canto, he makes that uh, bold claim, right? Which memory unerring shall retrace, which I, I put an exclamation point there. Like there's no sort of uh, second guessing himself or I'm faithfully recording all of this, right? Which even Dante, it's not like before Freud or something, everyone thought that memory was infallible, right? He clearly had available to him the idea that memory failed <laughs> uh, from experience alone, but also philosophically. Well, I think it's an important point because he is wanting to say, and similar actually to Augustine, right? That the reason the memory is unerring is that this is something that the will of the Lord organized in order to be a, a light to other people, right? So it's like not as if his memory is unerring. He's sort of, he has a divine aid, I guess. Yes. As he, you know, does throughout the poem. And the very, the very next line there at the beginning of Canto 2, he invokes the muses. Oh, lofty genius, aid me now. And then memory again. So you have memory and then muse and then memory again. He is there, you know, placing himself in conversation with Homer, who had his invocation at the beginning of Iliad, speak memory, speak muse. Well, what's interesting about this idea of unerring memory is that, so Dante, the poet, has passed through all this and has some sort of wisdom or knowledge to impart, 
But Dante the Pilgrim <laughs> makes all sorts of mistakes and gets all sorts of things wrong, right? All of Canto Two is dedicated to his him lacking courage and Virgil tells him, or two or three, uh, him lacking courage. And so Virgil tells him the narrative in order to give him courage, right? So Dante the Pilgrim is radically flawed, which makes sense, right? Because this is the story of a soul being transformed, right? So at the beginning, the Pilgrim is necessarily deficient in all these different ways. Right. So I guess one question we could think about is why, if there's some quality about this Pilgrim that makes him sort of marks him out as like what why is it this character that go that has a as a living body goes through hell and purgatory and paradise rather than some other person right if there's some what qualities about the pilgrim make him a good candidate to be the person still in their first life to go through and go back and re- recall and record the story well, is, I mean, I think the answer to that is in Inferno 2, line 103. And so Virgil is recounting this story. Like, let me tell you all the people, the three women that are rooting for you, right? That inter- intervened on your behalf when you were totally lost. And starting, I guess, at 100, uh, this is Virgil speaking. Lucy, right, which stands for light, Lucia, right? Lucy, the enemy of every cruelty, arose and came to where I sat. I, Beatrice, sat at Venerable Rachel's side and said, Beatrice, true praise of God. Why do you not help the one who loved you so that for your sake he left the vulgar herd? Right. We know from uh, what's that? Vida Nueva, right, that that he was in love with this woman, Beatrice. And he he somehow set himself apart in devotion to Beatrice even though he didn't know at that time, right, that Beatrice really, I think, well, I think the poem will bear this out, but that Beatrice symbolizes divine love or something. But at some point he set himself apart as an adorer of beauty. And that uh, that becomes the reason Lucy gives why Beatrice should intervene on his behalf. And that, right, his devotion to beauty, right, that has to predate being lost in the dark wood, right? He's lost in the dark wood because he forgot his first love, right? His first devotion to this woman, which again, represents so much more than herself in the poem. I think that's certainly part of it. I think also the flip side of it is that it seems like his principal sin is something like weakness or incontinence. You know, we see that with like the animals beginning in the first canto. He is capable of doing the entire system because he doesn't have enough moral stamina to withstand each affront. Like each thing that he encounters actually repulses him. Whereas when we get the description of Beatrice in hell, right? She's totally unfazed by the hell. She doesn't even notice it on some level. Um, And so because he's like a weak and man, morally speaking, he's affected by the, the tiger and the leopard and all of these other sins in a way that that like literally records on him and in his memory the way a stronger more, more pearl person doesn't notice evil so like <laughs> so yeah so his cowardice is like a um actually useful in his yeah it's interesting it's essential he has to be affected he's yeah. the only character affected by you know, Virgil, Virgil has some kind of like internal stamina, right? He sees Sharon and is like mm-hmm. unafraid of this like monster who's beating people, you know, by the millions onto the decks of his boat. But he, he's not so weak that he's, you know, one of the damned. 
who can only experience their own suffering, right? Because they're so unlimitedly suffering, right? They're, they're like either like swatting the gnats, biting their face. And so they're caught up in that entirely. So they can't mm-hmm. give an account of hell, but he's also not, um, he's also not virtuous enough to be indifferent to their fate. So he just, he, he's, he's empathetic and that's a moral weakness, but it's, it's useful for t- storytelling. I wonder if that's kind of a, yeah, like a metaphor for the creative process in some way too, right? Like you're not caught up in the march of <laughs> like the march of daily life to such a degree that you can't see outside of your immediate surroundings, but you're also not so, um, let's say, I guess virtuous or so abstracted from life that you can't remain empathetic to human suffering and human foibles mm-hmm. you know, you're like in, in between state that's kind of what i was thinking about what it might mean for the straight way to to be lost in that third line because i was really puzzling about that like why is the third why is the straight way lost and i wondered if it was like i don't know correct me if i'm wrong adam in interpreting what you're saying but like there's some sort of you come to a, a an irresolvable end and you need to like, and, need, and life now kind of like becomes complicated and you got to figure it out, right? Yeah, I'm wondering about what this journey, what this spiritual journey that you've alluded to, Elijah, looks like. Because it doesn't seem to me that this is all bad stuff that's going on here. It seems like some sort of necessary going through um, that we all have to come to. And I think that I, that's how I take the, the in our journey of life. Like we all kind of have to come to the state insofar as we're going to be authentic or something like that. Well, yeah, I think that's absolutely right, Paul. I mean, he comes to the little hill, right? And up that hill is the, you know, all joy and blessedness, but he can't go up. He has to go down, <laughs> right? He actually goes the opposite direction because the three beasts yeah. are... I mean, essentially, he's going the long way around. Not just down. He has to go through the center of the earth. And come yeah, back yeah, yeah. And the side, right? Yeah. Um, so I think you're right about what you're saying. But it's odd, though, right? Because, like, the straight way, like, we think of, like, the straight and narrow, mm-hmm. you know, like, that being the path that you want to be on. But then, yeah, I think you're right that, like, going the way around is oftentimes, like, the actually more virtuous or good way to go choosing the more difficult route i was going to say i mean one of the beasts says no man passes by me alive right no man right everyone who makes it to heaven goes the long way right metaphorically (laughs) right every soul that becomes fulfilled goes through suffering through purification through trials and tribulations right there is no just a little hop skip jump up the little hill to have to blessedness just doesn't happen right but for dante right insofar as his life is an allegory even though only one living body gets to do what he does right it's symbolically acting out the the task for every soul yeah no i think i like that i think it's i guess i just want to keep wondering about why the straight way was lost though and like why we come to Mm -hmm. how one comes to this spiritual point where I can't just keep going on like that, you know, and I have to reach this beast and what that actually might look like, you know, like something about our, our human nature or how we are situated. Our circumstances dictate necessitate that we cannot take this 
easy way or simple way toward the uh, the peak. Somehow it's just, it's impossible. We have a long journey ahead of us. A long journey ahead of us as human beings. But it, I guess one thing I am wondering about that though, is this for everyone? Is this something that everyone must do? Is it actually human nature or is it just for you know, a certain number of the population. I, I, I don't know if we have the answer yet, but I'm curious about that. So Paul, what do you make of lines 10 to 12? He says, how I came there, the dark wood, I cannot really tell. I was so full of sleep when I forsook the one true way. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe there is just something mysterious. It's kind of like that Paul on the road to Damascus moment where you mm-hmm. just like get struck and and you're not really sure why it is although there there is kind of an explanation but well and i i would offer if we kind of step back a little bit i mean i read those lines and there's something just deeply true about them like you know 32 right dante's 35 i think when he takes his journey i'm 32 and i've had multiple moments in the last 10 years where i'm kind of like how did i get here (laughs) Like, what, like, who was in the driver's seat? Like, how did I get here? And then how did I get here? And how did this happen? You know, so it's, I mean, in that sense, it's a universal experience. And this description really resonates. I think everyone can identify with it. Yeah, I think that the, the precipitating event is probably, is not a question we can answer. But yeah, certainly, it's supposed to be a, I think it's supposed to be a universal moment that all human beings experience where yeah, you can look around mm-hmm. and you're like or you can even think of it as a moment of like existential ex- existential crisis or a moment of dread or anxiety or something like that too mm-hmm. i think where you just like face yourself in a more honest way than you typically do when you're just going about your life yeah that's the that's the the line that struck me too i came to myself yeah. <laughs> like usually it's like, i found yeah. myself the other translations i read i believe say i found myself so i thought the came to myself was kind of interesting i don't know though it's it's, etrom- it's etymological so it's retrovai which is like vi is like come or coming and it's the same yeah. root as via and road um so like, i returned yeah. yeah so it means yeah. to like come back to yeah. and then hence found but yeah it, it yeah it's it's an interesting translation well to follow up on what you were saying, Paul, I mean, looking at these lines again, right? I came to myself in a dark wood for the straight way was lost. And the idea of a straight way existing in a dark wood is like paradoxical in and of itself. No dark woods have straight ways. <laughs> um, and, and right, he's not, for reading sort of typologically, he's not in the garden, right? He's not in the Garden of Eden, right? He's been cast out of the garden, right? And he's in a dark wood. And I mean, I think to your point, I think, and this is a sort of Kierkegaardian point about uh, despair, right? Everyone is in the dark wood and no one has a straight way, but there's a group that never realize it. And there's a group that realize it. There's no group that never loses the straight way. I think that would be, I mean, that's just the paradox of the combination of straight way and dark wood sort of leads me to that conclusion. Yeah, I like that. That's nice. I wanted to go back a minute ago to what you were saying about what qualities Dante has and right I read the part where it says he loved Beatrice so much and that matters and we're going to see throughout that he has pity for people and then in Canto 3 there are all the people that are that made no commitments in their life they made no commitments to be either good nor evil right they were literally they literally were so indecisive that they became a nothing right like their name is not worth being recorded Mm -hmm. right let's pass by them both heaven and hell scorn them right that's the line and uh, I think there's something about 
Well, yeah, love is so central for Dante. And I think, right, the capacity for love that Dante has, which leads him to pity all these sinners we're going to see, right, is also the thing that makes him capable of being a, a great lover of Beatrice and of God, right? But right now, the love is totally, I mean, it's undirected or mis disordered in Augustine's terms, right? But the capacity to love is a capacity for commitment, right? Yeah. He's also like a capacity to go towards. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, he's intensely curious, I think, in a way that um, mar it marks him out, you know, as a, when it says like leave the vulgar horde, I mean, I, if you take Beatrice to be a, at least in one way, you know, a symbol of philosophy, right? And part of that is that this is a person who's read and thought a lot and is, is yeah is curious about what other people have said, and that and then you know and then is in turn is curious about the fate of the sinners and why they're in the position they're in. Mm -hmm. So he's frightened for himself, but he also you know we'll see as we read, he spends his entire time in in hell and in purgatory, just asking people for their stories you know, mm -hmm. and trying to understand how they got to be in the position they're in. And regarding these opening lines, the intersection of, of the particular and the abstract, abstractly, this is the story of everybody in some way. Concretely, Dante, the poet, right, was a rising political star in Florence and he got exiled. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Everything fell apart in a real way, right? And, and we can yeah. also, I think, take those first lines to be referring to like all my plans, all of my uh, projects, right? And the sort of existentialist sense of that word just fell apart. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, for sure. And I mean, it, you know, the way that it's phrased, I think is supposed to put you in the in mind of a, a parable or a fable or something, right? It has that quality of, I know, what's, what is the quality of a fable, I guess? It's like, it's not reality, but it's, it is reflecting something real, right? Mm -hmm. Allegorical? I don't know if you want to call it. I don't know that I would call this an allegory. It's the poetic language of, that, that Vico talks about, right? Yeah. Well, one question for me is, and I don't, I don't think, well, okay. so I guess one question for me is to what degree we're meant to take hell and purgatory literally in terms of like the torture of human bodies and the length of time people will spend in purgatory and that kind of thing i guess I'll say, yeah i don't i don't exactly know how to how to think about that so. i don't see any reason not to take it completely literally except in the fact that dante himself knows that he didn't do it like it's 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 weird because i think the framing of the story is so i think the existentialist thing is true like it's some kind of coming to himself but it, but the story is i think the big difference between existentialism is the story is so framed around the world um and around like bodies and um it, like it feels like an, a very embodied thing and like all this happens because people are watching out for him right like there's yes these guardian spirits which i think is what separates this work from that that kind of like later you know deeply personal tradition mm -hmm. and like the whole the fact that the whole way he manages it he has a literal guide and so when, when i think about that i think that it lessens the allegorical aspect in the sense mm -hmm. that like i think he's he's like it's weird because it, it can't can't be he literally thinks hell is like this in one sense because he he knows that i mean i'm taking it for granted maybe i'm wrong about this but he knows he didn't go to hell and at the same time the world that put him there is so 
real. Unlike the opening line, like halfway through our life, right? He doesn't even begin with the my yet. He has to first pr- pronounce about life and then I'll say, it happened to me. Well, can well, I or go ahead, Adam? I don't doubt that Dante genuinely believed that hell is a real place where right. sinners go to be tormented after if they, you know, if they're sinners in life. Whatever. I just wonder, you know, did he intend for us to think you are going to be uh, in, you know, this kind of like embodied version of yourself and be tormented in this very grotesque and ironic way in a way that corresponds to your crimes and there are all these layers of hell. I, I just don't know. I don't, that's, I guess it's more what I mean. I, mean. I don't think there's any kind of like secret reading of the Inferno where it's like, oh, we didn't actually, you know, whatever, blah, blah, right. But that's, I guess I'm just thinking is, about that. Is, is hell material or is it spiritual? Yeah. Is, it, is this mm-hmm. metaphorical for like something that's a little beyond the limits of human knowledge that exists because we can have faith that it exists because God says it does? Or is it really like a material, very material place, like a really, you know, demented human city or something? Well, what oh. immediately stands out to me about the um, nature of it is that it's not the afterlife here, right? Because he's recounting about it. Mm-hmm. So it's something that does happen to you, I th- I think, as of now, spiritually in your life. And that that is truly bizarre to me because hell's always been something that's of the afterlife. And, you know, in the way that I was, I've understood Christianity. Well, but, but uh, Dante gets a, Dante gets a special dispensation to go through all these things, right? He's, he's elected to have a unique experience in terms of the concrete, like metaphorically, I think, I do think every soul is, is called to go through this during life in some way, but over and over in hell, they're going to be like, what are you doing here? You're still alive. Right. And even chair chart. But, I mean, but that, I mean, does, that just makes it even more complicated, it, you know, cause it's like, why did if we're all going, if we all have to go through it, but then he also got special dispensation to, to mm-hmm. go through it in the life. Now it's really fishy. Well, so most people don't go to hell, right? That like, I think that's also a key part of it. So it's mm-hmm. not like you go to the gate of St. Peter and then you're sorted. And then you like, you know, in, in a way it's different from modern Christian mythology it's like you die there's this like darkness that seems to come upon you and there's some kind of journey and then very rapidly you just show up in the chaos and screaming if you're destined for hell on the shores of Acheron and you you cross under the gate and I it seems like the gate is something very concrete like literally right um, like the fact that it's called a city, it's like a Roman think, arch. Yeah, yeah, is is really crucial to the literality of it. Let's um, well, well, yeah, I don't have intuitive it. proof of this, but let me, let me jump in real quick with two things. Charon says, right? He says, Dante, you have to take a different boat, right? My boat can't take living bodies, right? And he seems to imply that it'll sink, right? Yeah. And and I bring that up both to talk about the uniqueness of what Dante's doing, but also to talk about the concreteness of it. Like, right, you know, just like here, a person who is too big for a boat, right, would sink that boat. So the same physics obtain in this world or mm-hmm. similar physics. Mm-hmm. But the second thing, maybe this will clarify the sort of sort of conventional reading of the comedy is that 
Inferno is about the recognition of sin. Purgatory is about purification of sin. And then heaven is about right receiving God's love. For Dante, every soul is called to do that, which is different than literally, literally doing this. But Dante's, as Adam said at the beginning, Dante is literally having this journey for pedagogical purposes beyond his own life. So he can write this poem and teach everyone else how to recognize, <laughs> overcome sin. Does that mm. make sense? Yeah, that's another, that's another way of thinking about it. It's like, to what degree is this just a pedagogical exercise? To what degree is it like an accounting of what the afterlife actually will be like? For, mm-hmm. you know? Well, and the orderliness of it all, right? The yeah. seven deadly sins in order, and then in purgatory, each layer corresponds to sin. I mean, that's, that's, that's a medieval cosmology. That's how medievals wanted to see the world is like mm-hmm. order to the utmost. But it is obviously very good for very good for pedagogical purposes if you want to show the nature of lust and gluttony and so on and so forth right this structure is perfectly set up to do that uh, let's uh read the inscription on the on the arch that you pass under when you enter the city of hell this is the beginning of canto three through me the way to the city of woe through me the way to everlasting pain through me the way among the lost justice move my maker on high Divine power made me, wisdom supreme and primal love. Before me, nothing was but things eternal, and eternal I endure. Abandon all hope, you who enter here. Uh, discuss. All of Canto Two, right, was dedic- was Virgil giving Dante hope back, getting him to hope again. He had lost all hope in his journey, and then he encourages him, and then the sign is abandon hope expresses his doubt and and virgil tries to reassure him you know here you must banish all distrust here must all cowardice be slain a reference to that theme the theme of cowardice cowardice and courage this one that we were tracking through the early cantos i thought yeah i thought the issue in two was more his certainty and like the cowardice was leading to him being super uncertain, which I can see be tied to hope. Maybe I just didn't read it carefully, but I don't remember it being hope that was at stake. I think hope is at stake in one sense that he literally tries to go a different way or he doesn't try to climb to the top of the hill in one. Like he sees the she-wolf as the one that pushes him furthest away, but he literally tra- tries to do something else entirely which I think in some sense is, is an abandonment of hope. Virgil's advice makes no sense. So Dante sees the gate. For whatever reason, he doesn't understand it, even though it's understanding to me is pretty perfectly clear. And then he says, I don't understand. Virgil clarifies in a way that does not, to me at least, clarify in any way. Because he says, he as one who understood here you must banish all distrust. Here all must cowardice be slain. So the gate it seems like the most obvious interpretation is this gate actually doesn't apply to Dante, right? Like, oh, it is this way to hell. God made me out of love. But the last line, everything up to the last line is true except for Dante, and Virgil doesn't say, oh, that just doesn't apply to you because you're a living soul and all you have these angels protecting you. It's just like, he's like, yeah, this means literally that you have to give up all cowardice. 
at this exact moment too, which is, I, I really doubt he's going to succeed in doing that. Greg, there's a dual meaning to Harvard, right? And the, the Italian is, is duro, right? Which is, so it's a literal translation, right? Hard, hard can be difficult to understand. It can also be like uh, uncomfortable, offensive, right? Like in one way he could be saying what sort of just God could create this, right? There could be doubts about God's love in the sense of this is a hard truth. Not hard to understand, but hard to accept. Yeah, and the gate itself is called duro. The gate mm-hmm. says, um, "Eio eterno durno." Like I, that's hard in the sense of last, right? I'm iron hard forever. I still don't know if I understand Virgil's meaning, though. If, if I have doubts about religion and I respond, "Oh, you, you can't have those doubts," that does not feel like effective pedagogy especially since Virgil himself does not have any belief, right? Like he doesn't know God. And maybe that's why he has to respond this way. Like, oh, well, you just have to accept God's grace. And then you'll find out about it later when you go to heaven. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think he's, he's saying you can't, you're going you're, you're gonna to pass under this gate and you must banish your distrust of divine dispensation you've been given to move through this realm or something right isn't that that seems like to me what he's at least that's one way to, to read it i think so in, so in canto two right he's he's in lines 30 starting in line 31 he's talking to virgil and this is the beginning of his doubts right and and he says but why should i go there who allows it i am not aeneas nor am i paul neither i nor any think me fit for this and so if I commit myself, and the Italian is may abandono, if I abandon myself to come, if I commit myself to come, I fear it may be madness. It's weird because he comes to himself in the dark wood, the very beginning, and then immediately he meets Virgil who comes to save him and he's immediately called to abandon himself in some way or to commit himself in some way. I don't know what to do with that, but I think that's relevant to what's going on at the gate. Well, that, yeah. that's why that's why I'm stuck on this. It's not about hope in Canto Two. It's about it's about knowledge. It's about his will. It's about his steadfastness. Well, so this I'll tell you where I, I got it, and I'm not committed. I mean, I guess we need to talk about what I mean by hope and what you mean. But the very end of it. Uh, so this is line 136. Uh, Dante says to Virgil, "Your words have made my heart so eager for the journey that I've returned to my first intent." Set out then for one will prompts us both. You are my leader. You're my Lord and master. I said to him, and when he moved away, I entered on the deep and savage way. And so, the, right. I've returned in a couple thoughts. When he says I've returned to my first intent, what is that referring to? <laughs> is that his first intent before he got lost in the woods, in the dark woods at all? You know, what is that referring to? I don't know, but his heart being eager for the journey. I mean, I guess I'm saying hope that he can escape, hope that he can be saved, whatever that's where I'm, I'm pulling the word that's i think the lines that made me think there was hope but what do you do with that does that clarify or or further confuse the issue i mean i think it further confuses it but i think in a pretty useful way i guess i just like it seems like a lot of the early lines of canto two are him struggling with his his sense of knowledge and like whether he's going to fall into madness for doing this and there's a sense of like whether he has his like mental faculties even Mm -hmm. you know together and like in some sense hope i mean this isn't obviously a universal uh truth but like 
hope to me is and can be understood as a kind of madness. It isn't, it, mm-hmm. it is in some ways opposed to knowledge. You know, we do hope for that, which we don't know. So I guess that's where I was kind of going with that back to like what Greg was struggling with earlier is like, yeah, how does this, how does the thing above the gate apply to apply to Dante at all, especially in light of that? Like, does that last line even apply to him? So I was, I was thinking of this more as like, well, it, the person who does apply to is Virgil, right? Virgil is actually not capable of hope anymore if he is in hell. Um, and he quotes that because if you go back to Virgil in Canto 1, He's talking about the ones in hell. He's like, I'll show you the sinners. You hear their cries. You see the ancient souls in pain. That's him. And then as they bewail their second death, right? And he says, then you will see the ones who are content to burn because they hope to come. So this is about purgatory, whenever it may be, among the blessed. So that's Virgil's laugh, right? He, he is, has a second death that's permanent as opposed to the pur- ones in purgatory who actually have a hope. Then if you go back to the thing, he, so the, the gate says, lasciate ogni, or uh, speranza, right? So he says, like, like lasciate, like cut off or like lose it, all your hope, right? He quotes it back to Dante, lasciate ogni sospetto, but he changes the last word. So he says, so, so he's elaborating on the meaning, right? He's, he's recapitulating. He says, well, you're going to abandon all. And then he switches hope for suspetto, distrust, oh. right? or like um, suspicion, right? So you're going to abandon all suspicion. And then he, he's clarifying. He says, all, onye, wilto convien que la quiesi morta. Here all cowardice undergoes like the second death, undergoes the death. So he says, your cowardice uh-huh. is going to die and you're going to cut off your doubts. Um, and that's what it means for you but i'm wondering too the, fun- the function of hell is different for dante than the typical yeah uh, and, and so he's he's changing the that last there's some kind of abandoning that's that is happening there and it's the first two words of it but uh although he does change the verb regarding the whatever but i'm wondering too if if part of this is issues is that virgil himself is not capable of understanding its meaning because mm-hmm. he can't possess hope to lose he actually has gone through this process of abandoning it you can think about that as collapsing the two ways we were talking about the meaning of hell earlier like hell is hell remains in a sense allegorical or pedagogical for the living person but then when the person dies it becomes literal and is no longer a chance to learn or to to purify or anything like that it's just a an abandonment of hope. You must banish all distrust of who or with regards to what. So you don't think that it's distrust of his of Virgil's ability to, or Beatrice's ability or something to get him safely through hell? I think it could be that, but I'm just wondering. It's not specified and it's interesting, yeah. right? We don't yeah. typically, well, both trust and distrust are transitive verbs typically. Right. Mm-hmm. And here it's used as intransitive, at least in the translation. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess here, suspicion. Here it's a noun, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Here it's a noun, I guess. But but to use it in this basically intransitive way is very bizarre. Mm-hmm. That's what I was asking. Mm-hmm. 
like distrust of God, distrust of Virgil, distrust of himself, yeah. distrust of the justice of the cosmos. I mean, there's there's a lot of things. Right, that's interesting way to think about it. Don't, yeah. Well, why why not very... just take it to be all of that? Yeah. You know, like if well, it think... is this like if it is this like existentialist kind of leap, like mm-hmm. you just you gotta like you just gotta uh, go uh, like go. Yeah, that's right. Distrust that there's meaning in the universe or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And what I like about that, Paul, I mean, again, if this is book, if this book is somehow allegorical about what the soul ought to become, the journey of the soul, right? Then finally, right, the purified soul is one which doesn't have distrust. <laughs> Generally, right, the the whole soul, the healed soul, the redeemed soul, however you want to say it, is one in which all distrust. And in, in, in actually, now that I'm thinking about it, right, it would also be distrust towards your fellow man, right? What we're going to see in hell is that nobody trusts each, trusts each other, right? Yeah. And when we think about heaven, what does heaven have to be? It has to be somewhere where your, your horizontal relationships, right, your relationship with your fellow man is not characterized by distrust. Otherwise, heaven wouldn't work. Yeah, I mean, I, I took it to be like Virgil is urging him to have faith. And that's a, yeah, certain, that's kind of, that's a certain kind of certainty. And I think that is opposed <laughs> to hope. In a, in, a, in a very important way i mean i still want to work it out and think about it as i go forward but there's like there's certainty in in faith that i don't think is found mm-hmm. in hope necessarily well i mean we know from the apostle paul right uh, faith hope and love are the three theological virtues but faith and hope actually disappear at the end because you don't need hope if you've arrived right and you don't need faith if you see love never goes out of style but but in a real sense, uh, faith and hope are means to an end and, and, and uh, make themselves obsolete, right? Yeah, love well, is... Well done, Mr. Knoll. <laughs> <laughs> well, well done. Love is definitely the be-all and end-all of the universe here, Dante's universe. To the well, love even created hell. Yeah. yeah. Here, here Virgil says, too, about the sinners, he calls them, he says that they have lost the good of the intellect. So mm-hmm. and he doesn't say... Where are you? It's right after this. So this is 18. So, so he says, you know, you got to do this. We've come to the pl- where I said you'd see the sinners, right? The miserable sinners who have lost. And so that's perduto. So that's like consigned to perdition. Like they've gone to the bad place, like through the, I don't know what duto means, they, but they're, they're, they're like, they're lost in that they've gone through to the dark place, the good of the intellect. So Virgil describes their loss and there it's the good that the intellect is for the sake of. And so I really do think Paul, part of your question uh, is that Virgil is going to phrase things in an intellectual way, in a way that the other entities won't frame it at all. It's this weird thing because I don't think Virgil actually can misunderstand. Like, I don't think we're supposed to treat him like a unreliable narrator but it's that his framing will actually always be deficient, mm-hmm. just not false. Well, right. He represents in, in some way human reason and not to spoil what comes later, but he doesn't get to enter into heaven, right? Human reason can take you thus far, <laughs> no farther. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. He phrases it in a, a very, in like a pre-Christian way, the good of the intellect. Mm-hmm. He phrases it in a platonic way. That definitely ruined what's to come. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alert. Virgil did not get into heaven. 
All right. Um, we, we've only had on 700 hook. years to read yeah. this. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he acknowledges it for the years. first canto. I was going to say, he, before he like leads with the sad, the sadness of his situation. Oh. Well, I mean, not, to me, the sadness of his situation, mm-hmm. I guess. Not within the text. Can we, can we maybe think a little bit about, unless I don't want to divert the conversation if there's more to say about this, but what we're saying is making me wonder if we need to think about uh, why Virgil is the guide. I mean, I think it's fairly obvious on one hand, but yeah, it would be worth thinking about a little bit. Does that seem like a good direction yeah, to go? I like that. How is it obvious though? Uh, Dante wants to be a great epic poet in the tradition of Virgil. That's See, the one I was thing. thinking it was tied to Rome. That was going to say oh, yeah. the, the he second also predicted thing. the birth of Christ mm-hmm. in the in the in the like the medieval Georgics, tradition. yeah, yeah, he's heralded as one of the predictors of Christ's birth. So uh, I guess that's out of favor now. But back in Dante's time, I was all the rage. The well, uh, I mean, oh, yeah, it's it's, it's an expression on. of his attempt to synthesize classical and Christian wisdom, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I do think that it almost has to privilege the more artistic or poetic elements and the more like. I don't know if an allegorical or symbolic reading of this of some parts of the poem, because well, because the guide is Virgil and not you know not Paul or not uh, it's not Beatrice it's not Beatrice from the first canto to the last right <laughs> seems like it could be. But one question is if if Virgil is representing intellect in some way, why not Aristotle? Why not Plato? Well, again, right. So he's, yeah, it's, it's it's making it it's staking its claim as an, as a great poem first. Right. And then that claim leads you into the other elements, I guess, or that claim does the, does the, does making Virgil the guide seem to you to make the claim that it's just a great epic poem supersede the other, you know, the theological elements, or is it, is Dante wanting to say the theological and the poetic are, perfectly balanced in this work the what well, sorry i missed it the water balanced the theological and the poetic yeah mm-hmm. well and that's and we need to think then about i mean his right uh his merging of roman mythology and christian mythology right beginning of of inferno 2 line 9 in in canto 2 i began poet you who guide me consider if my powers will suffice before you trust me with to this arduous passage you tell of the father of Silvius that he, still subject to corruption, went to the eternal world while in the flesh. So in a sense, the seeds of this whole poem are in uh, Aeneid 6, right? When Aeneas goes to the underworld. But that adversary of all evil, God, showed such favor to him, Aeneas, considering who and what he was and the high sequel that would spring from him, seems not unfitting to a man who understands. If we stop there, we're just in the world of Rome, Right. The gods favored Rome because Rome was the eternal empire. And that's a good thing. That's the best thing. That's the highest thing. But we read on. For in the Empyrean, he was chosen to father holy Rome in her dominion. Both of these established, if we would speak the truth, to be the sacred precinct where successors of great Peter have their throne. Right? So in some sense, the Aeneid is being continued. Right? But it doesn't end in Augustus. It ends in the Pope. Right? And there is the world sort of very, very world historical development that we saw in the Aeneid. It's just extended to, you know, include medieval Christendom, right? And so it was a pretty audacious, <laughs> audacious move, actually. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, and he does that. He does that in a couple places where he's really sort of continuing, continuing the lo- the historical logic of the Aeneid 
into the Christian era. Another part, part of that is that Christianity fulfilled the empire Rome could not. Yeah, that's right. right. Like, er, like effectively everyone is Christian. There are not souls that are not, there are souls that fail to rise to become Christian Saracens or whatever, but you know, the, the dominion that lasts for forever was not Rome, but what the, the religion of Rome. The other thing too, is that Virgil is split like or is is split in a way that dante is not right virgil and aeneas are like two iterations of each other that are merged in the self of dante in some way virgil's like like, right because virgil has a hero separate than himself that he's telling an epic about dante is his own hero in the epic so the poet as you know hero versus poet as poet are split up um but in the way that they're that you know can be properly legit virgil's been to hell in the exact same way dante has mm-hmm. which is that he's capable of telling a story about it and so he's he's literally the forerunner of of dante in the, in a very literal sense that he's been to hell can tell about it and therefore dante will do the same yeah although i, I want to be careful saying that the Dante in the poem is a hero. I'm not sure I think that he's a hero in that. Certainly not in the sense mm-hmm. of the of Aeneas. Well, let's let's talk about that because I, th- I think that's important, right? In some sense, before he writes the poem, he's an everyman. He's not the son of a god. He's not heroic in some conventional sense. But mm-hmm. I'm but he's also given the special privilege of going through this. Right, but not because of any well, right. That's, that's yeah that's the question yeah. is it because oh. of some special quality some or some heroic quality I mean, he doesn't seem heroic at least but at least just given we've read so far his main characteristic seems to be that he's i mean he seems christianly heroic he loved right. beatrice and he is cowardly and empathetic right? paul same say more what you mean by well he's not a, he's heroic. not a, he's not a killer mm-hmm. but he is a lover and he is attentive and he is curious and he is empathetic seems at least so far um from what we have i mean yeah we're so it's so early in this in this whole thing Mm -hmm. that it's tough to make these general claims but that's the sense i kind of got from it especially from this conversation so far well and i guess my thought about all of this is that and i was sort of think trying to work this out in my head while we were talking earlier i think if we look at the old testament the hebrew scripture paradigm why did god pick abraham why did God pick Jacob and not Esau? Because he could, <laughs> right? And and in one of the epistles, right, Paul's really specific. God chose Jacob over Esau before either of them had done anything right or wrong. Because, because again, this is the our box God, not the Greek God, right? This God is mysterious. There's depth there. He does what he want, wants and his reasons are not clear. And so in some sense, right, the answer to why Dante was picked has to be grace this mysterious thing that picked him, right? And maybe it picked him because he was especially lost, right? Like that, maybe that's the answer, but we don't, I don't, I myself, right? Thinking about the tradition that Dante's working in, I think it's definitely worth thinking about why was he chosen? But I also think within the the Judeo-Christian paradigm, there doesn't have to be a reason or at least one that we know. And that's kind of the logic of grace in some sense that there is right. no logic <laughs> yeah yeah i mean yeah. no logic that's accessible to us at least right to the mere mortals yeah the 
the paradigm the seems it seems very important because just trying to compare this to the other epics that we've studied what's taking place in the iliad are the greek asserting themselves against troy trying to sack troy and and then in odyssey odysseus is meaning to establish reclaim his kingdom of course the most pertinent epic that we've read for for analyzing inferno now is the aeneid where the uh trojans go to italy and and begin to establish what becomes the roman empire so now that in dante's time the roman empire has been established what is left to be won or conquered is the is the soul of every christian human being so the there's no there's no walls there's no walled city to be torn down literally but there's there's a there's a fight for the the soul of each uh, human being in the holy roman empire so maybe maybe that's what one way to think about this epic this journey through through the uh realms of souls are you saying like so dante represents this like step into like true universality mm-hmm. where like everyone is is included in this in this whole thing whereas before it was like it seemed like it was getting more general and more broad as we moved along in the epics but but now we've right. reached truly like everyone's souls are at stake. Yeah, trying to think about what Dante the character represents because mm-hmm. in the other epics we've read, it's pretty clear that the heroes have a certain objective and it's a it's a literal objective that we see them carry out and but Dante is going through on a tour of the of the realms of souls, the afterlife. I guess we have we have a lot of questions about what what this represents, because it's not something that we can physically go experience. At least I haven't heard anyone recently going to mm-hmm. to hell and back. Well, Virgil or uh, sorry, Aeneas, right? He represents the the archetype of Pietas, piety, Romanitas, whatever, right? This is what every Roman ought to be. But that's still sort of geographic. It's contained to an ethnos, right? But I'm thinking about there's a scene where in the Gospels when Jesus meets the Samaritan woman, right? So a different ethnicity. And it's John 5. He says, the time is coming when people won't worship on this mountain or on that mountain, but will worship the Father in spirit and truth, right? It's this radical statement saying, you know, this worship you can do anywhere because it's not bound to a geographical location, right? Paul talking about the uh, armor of God, right? I think... He says, uh, we don't fight against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, right? So Dante, yeah, in some ways, this is, I, and I think a big question we'll have to think about all the way through this is like, or a big challenge is, is how not to over-psychologize what Dante's doing. Like he's not, I don't know, I'll stop there, but that's an interesting question to me. Uh, Don, Dante the character or Dante the writer? What Dante the writer is doing. I'm not even sure what my question means, but let me say one thing and then go, Paul. I mean, it's clear to me that whatever's going on here, it's much more internal than previous epics. 
but I don't want to sort of reduce it in some modern way to sort of modern psychological categories too quickly. But what was your question, Paul? No, I mean, you kind of, I think you kind of answered it. I, I was curious why you, why you thought there would be this impulse to psychologize this. Cause this does, especially in the way we were just talking about it, at least the way I was taking it is like, this does just seem to be like an expression of some sort of like historical development mm-hmm. or, you know, like the human spirit has reached a different, you know, form. Yeah. Um, and that felt very not psychological to me. Mm-hmm. So I just want to, but I think uh, I can see what you're saying that it is like focused on the eye of the author or at yeah. least the pilgrim that is Dante. So I mean, it is and it isn't right. I, uh, I think it, it is claiming to be universal, though. I don't think it's, mm-hmm. then you would need the Christian framework cosmology to make a universal, a truly universal claim, right? You couldn't make a universal claim from within a pagan framework. I don't think. When, and I said earlier that this is this whole book is in some sense about conversion. And so in one sense, it is about, I think, it's about self-realization, but not necessarily in the modern way that word is used, right? The like eat, pray, love sort of self-realization. <laughs> I want you to do a, uh, an eat, pray, love parody where it's like the, <laughs> first you eat and then you pray and then you love is the final stage. <laughs> stage. <laughs> I guess there is some uh, sort of similarities there yeah Yeah, i know i think it's about you realizing the true nature of yourself but that's not the same thing as yeah self-realization in the self-help sense certainly one thing that is present here that we haven't talked about at all is there's already sort of what i think is much more contemporary uh, in terms of dante's contemporaries like political content it's kind of hinted at already and it'll get a lot more acute as we move on but i mean like this um this passage quick he's already wanting to say things like where's the felt born between felt and felt line it's w- one one it's canto one 102 marked about oh yeah okay so virgil is talking here and he's talking about the she-wolf he this is after dante is turned away by the wolves and virgil's come to guide him and he, it's all sort of like line 96, count to one line 96. For the beast that moves you to cry out, lets no man pass her way, but so besets him that she slays him. Her nature is so vicious and malign, her greedy appetite is never sated. After she feeds, she is hungrier than ever. Many are the creatures that she mates with, and there will yet be more, until the hound shall come who will make her die in pain. He shall not feed on lands or lucre, but on wisdom, love, and power between felt and felt shall be his birth. He shall be the salvation of low-lying Italy, for which maiden Camilla, Aurelius, Turnus, and Nisus died of their wounds. So that's a claim, I think, about some sort of like emperor or pope or king that's going to come, right, and unite Italy. And I think, Alex, you kind of, you know, you think that's because we're talking about the previous epics and the battle, battle, so there's a like in the footnote, the footnotes would point out that the four names there fought on different sides of that battle, right? And so Dante's like putting the two sides back together and he's making a claim about political authority, like human political authority here. That's very much of his time, I think. And that's just one element that is strongly present in the poem that we should pay attention to. Well, well in the challenge... psychological the more. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. The challenge of this moment, so they're the three beasts that he encounters, 
And the footnote will tell you, well, that comes from some verse in Jeremiah or whatever, right? These three beasts. And the commentators want to say one is lust, one is envy, and the she-wolf who's always starving is greed, right? Because that's to continually eat. And so you're like kind of going along. Okay, I can go along with this. This is like allegorical in the Pilgrim's Progress sense of allegorical, right? And everyone has to face the she-wolf in their lives and everyone has to overcome avarice. And you're like, all right, this is all good. (laughs) And then there's some, you know, world historical prophecy that no, 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 no some guy is going to come and put this wolf to death forever. And like, you know, and so if we're understanding that is greed, well, that doesn't make any sense anymore. So like, what in the world do we do with this? It like mm-hmm. this moment particularly really, really challenges the sort of purely allegorical reading of the poem, like more than anything else in what we read, like what in the world are you supposed to do if, yeah, if the she-wolf is not just avarice generally that every soul has to deal with. Right. If there's a leader that's the there's a leader that's so yeah. powerful and so and so strong that he can uh, banish avarice from a human city or something. Or... Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, it's a really puzzling moment. Mm-hmm. But I mean, isn't there one way of reading that where it's it's that it's that Christ can do that in potentiality for everyone? Like I think again, this this gets into the is this is this are we talking about the material world, the concrete reality of things, yeah, or yeah, the yeah. spiritual reality? And isn't it possible that Christ does represent that as he does come and slay that ultimately? In like, mm-hmm. you know, like I don't I don't like this idea very much. I think it's somewhat useless. But like in spirituality, like we we have that possibility to you know eliminate that for ourselves well, i guess that's why i was thinking about the born between felt and felt line. i think that, i know that line's been a occasion for a lot of commentary in the history of dante scholarship but it seems at least that it locates this person we're discussing in human reality and, and will be born in some way that you would not you know what i mean mm-hmm. think of christ being born in that sense i mean i know you can interpret that allegorically too but well, it seems to cut against, I mean, I, I see where you're going there, Paul, and I also hesitate for the same reasons you are. It just seems to cut against the universality in this really bizarre way that it's not clear what he's doing, what, yeah, yeah. how we have us understand this. Yeah. No, but I mean, I think that's a really, but I think that's a sticking point, though, like, what is the nature of this universality? Yeah, I don't know if Christianity is actually accessible universally you know like what are you supposed to say about the person in china who's never had access to the bible you know like we can get all all sorts of these silly problems but like how is it universal in material reality but it's 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 not as controversial i don't think to say that it is universal spiritually and at least in like this potential sense where you could like come to these notions um without the requisite material conditions being present or whatever you know right yeah i mean i hear that point but i really feel like that's a byproduct of modern christianity like i think that at this time those arguments like what happens to all the people in china aren't part of oh it doesn't even feel like they're part of christianity it's really just like from the sense of the work so far I don't have a better way to put this other than like it feels, but it's just so rooted in bodily states that it, that it doesn't seem like those kinds of questions occur to him or like when he does have doubts, right. He's not like, Oh, do these people deserve to be in hell? 
It's what did they do such that they got here, which to me takes it like, anyway, I really think the universality of Christ is a physical structure. Like it seems to be like physically part of the world because it's so place oriented. And like, like and hell is so rooted in, in, a, in a, as a physical reality. Then he asks the kinds of questions that like a scientist, you know, this is silly because obviously not, it's not scientific at all, but it's like, you know, like, oh, you have a given abstract universal reality that's completely physically oriented. And then he tries to, to ask the kind of questions that will locate him within that space rather than doubt the structure of the, the like in the same way a physicist doesn't doubt the existence of atoms. He doesn't doubt that every soul deserves to be in hell. I, I well, two things. I'm not sure I agree with that. I want to say something to what Paul was saying, but then I want to say to what you were saying, Greg. I mean, I no, I actually think Paul is right in bringing this up as like a central question. And right. Like in the early church, there's a question over whether non-Jewish converts need to be need to be circumcised right and paul says neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but circumcision of the heart right and so there is this sort of there is this christianity in one sense is an ethnos but in another sense is not an ethnos in the way previous ethnoses were right ethnoi were in that it it is universal in that sense circumcision of the heart is in, in principle available to everybody regardless of your cultural trappings but with regards to it, you were, does that make sense? Does that track a little bit? Is that kind of what you were thinking, Paul? I mean, I think it's a really great question. No, Con- 100%. Yeah. Canto 3, line 22, now sighs, loud wailing, lamentation resounded through the starless air so that I began to weep. That doesn't seem clinical to me. It seems to me that very much that Dante the Pilgrim is feeling something like pity at this moment, right? And in some sense, the fact that he's pitying shows that he is not aligned with eternal justice. And he'll definitely do that with Francesca, right? Francesca and Paolo in the next canto, right? He hears their story and he sort of feels pity. You know, those are the two lovers that are in the outermost circle of hell. He definitely, he definitely, I think, is more involved than you characterized him, Greg. I didn't mean to say that he's, the scientist thing, I, I, I feel like is a, is a metaphor that goes wrong. I don't think he's clinical yeah. at all. All I mean by that is that to me, I don't see him. I guess it's to me, it's like there's a like, like if we're doing physics, there's a philosophic or scientific way to go about it. A philosophic way to do physics is to ask what are the first principles and like doubt those and analyze those. And like you hear that there are invisible things called atoms everywhere, and you ask a lot of questions about that. And then the scientific way is like once you're told there's atoms, you investigate how do these atom moves and the why and how they're doing that. You don't think at all about the Adam's existences. I don't know. I think we should definitely talk about that moment where he weeps, but I don't, I see him more as he has, he doesn't have philosophical concerns about the system. God's universality is presented to him in the sense of a physical reality that he takes up and, and only, he doesn't doubt it. He doesn't he, like it's, it is the world. Like the universality of Christianity is as real as dirt. Or something yeah and i think that's all I was say, to say. when you say he here are you thinking of dante the character or dante the poet? both both it seems like dante takes up the you yeah like, again i don't know how better we say this but like the universality of the of christianity is the same thing as blood or is what yeah. a heart is mm-hmm. 
I just, I don't think I, I have a hard time believing you actually think that though, Greg, like how is, how is something like Christianity? How is something like the idea of Christ like blood in any sort of way or like dirt in any sort of way? They're so different in kind. I, mean, I see what you're getting at and I appreciate the point, but like, it's not about the place of Rome or not about the place of Italy. It's, it is something that extends out to everyone, I, I think, potentially, right? And that, isn't that, like, fundamentally different? It seems to me that there's an attempt to actually to wheel both perspectives here, though, that Greg, you were saying, Greg. And I think he's both investigating the meaning of justice and love as first principles, and then also having the scientific or, we'll say, scientific questions about a world organized according to justice and love as first principles and in that world justice is real in the same way that atoms are real or gravity is real or something justice is like gravity maybe more than atoms but it's something that just that does organize well i don't know now now i'm sort of doubting myself because it's like there are also a lot of unjust things happening all the time right but justice is somehow is the architecture of reality the same way that God's love is the force that makes things possible. That moves the stars, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of what I mean. I mean, he really thinks he thinks of justice as phenomena, as like given reality. And that's why I keep going to like physicalist metaphors for it, because it, it, I, I don't think this is the story of someone investigating whether or not God is. No, like that, that doesn't see it's, it's not really, quite physicalist in that. No, certainly not. But it's not, but it's not quite physicalist in that you can go against justice, right? But, but look what happens to life. exact physical outcomes. Yeah. Like, I, I that's why it feels like a deeply, like, again, like we don't have, I don't have a word for this, mm-hmm. but it's like, it's, it's, it's like to me, and again, scientist is so clinical, and I really don't mean that at all, but he's like someone investigating the physical outcomes. The way the given physical world shows up to him is as deeply shot through with these, to me, what are universal phenomena, and to me, phenomena of a different order. But I don't think that he seems to encounter them as phenomena of a different order at all. Um, or it doesn't seem to, well, like he doesn't, he doesn't I mean, seem worried about great justice is different than blood. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if, if what you're getting at is that, I mean, he's a moral realist as opposed to a nominalist. Yeah, certainly. Right. And like, just as the, just as the natural world is governed by the laws of physics. So the spiritual world has similar sort of laws that function in a, in a somewhat regular way. I mean, I think that's true, but I think the afterlife as described here is, is like where the distinction doesn't cease to matter. Right. Right. I think it's earlier than that. Like, I, I like if really the angels are able to intervene on your body during life or like cause you to have this like incredibly transformative experience, whatever the hell happened to Dante, that he can write this book. I really feel like morality is engaged with the world on, a, on an actually physical. And that's why I keep going to the metaphor. Okay, yeah, that's, well, that's, well, great. Yeah. I mean, again, Greg, if, if what you're saying is that like, um, Right. The principle is right. Practice vice become vicious, practice virtue become virtuous. And that has a lot of reality for Dante to the point that becoming a virtuous person is like becoming a different person. I think that's true for 
Aristotle, but also for Dante. I, I think it's truer than to Aristotle in a really important way, though, that I can't, I don't, again, I don't have a way to put this down, but like, to, you know, to, like, like we just read Danimo, right? In Danimo, when you die, you lose your body. And Dante's, in, you know, I don't know how, what Dante actually thinks of that. But for Dante, that, at least as far as he's talking about, that's not true. And to me, that's an even deeper physicalism than the kind of which the ancients had access. Like, I, I think he's actually a really deeply undivided person with respect to physicalism. Like, I think he thinks of universal structures as, as like really there in a way that we like, uh, like this feels to me really important because it really feels how he's different than us. Right. Like, uh-huh. well, can I jump in? I mean, yeah. it's, it's interesting, right? This is not a treatise, right? He couldn't have done the Cartesian thing of, or the human thing of shutting himself in a room and making these discoveries to, to discover these, whatever he's showing us to discover it. He literally had to get up and walk around and he had to climb up and then climb down and, you know, go through the devil's uh, <laughs> rear end or whatever to like, know, but he's, yeah. but, he, that, but that's the problem though, right? It's like, he's given special privilege to be able to do that. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. all these other souls aren't. So how, right. what's the difference between Dante's experience of these places that I am still committed to thinking are of a spiritual nature than the other souls that are experiencing them? That seems uh, very guess, dualistic yeah, yeah, yeah. ultimately. Why, why does he need, if, if he, if anyone can just do this in a physical way, why does he need a special privilege? Mm-hmm. Well, not anyone can do it, right? Charon, what is the, the thing that Virgil says to Charon? No, but I'm, I'm, I guess I'm saying like, that <clears throat> seems to be what Greg is saying is that these places no. are, there is a not, sense that he don't have dichotomy. Yeah. Cause Charon says hey, you're, you'll make my boat sink. And Virgil says his passage has been decreed from the place where power and will are united or something, which does kind of read as if the, the physical laws of hell are altered in Dante's case. So he can have this experience, right? By sheer divine intervention. By yeah, right. Well, what I was trying to think through is, so why does he need a narrative? Whatever it is that Dante wants to show us, why does he need a narrative to do that? Right. And in some ways, right like thinking about the sort of reason and revelation thing, like obviously Dante is very smart and there's a lot of reason in this book, but there's sort of the, the revelation of like, literally, I mean, literally like walking around and seeing these things, right. And being able to see them. And, and in some sense, right. He is in no, in the real sense, he's in no way in the driver's seat, right. He's caught up in this thing that's bigger than himself and he's being pulled through and by these guides, by these women who are interceding for him, blah, blah, blah. He is, it's an, ex, it's experiential in a real way. And in that experience involves definite movement in the movement, right? The movement from hell to purgatory to heaven is physical in some sense, but it also is spiritual in another sense. And I don't, I don't actually don't, I mean, I think this is a really good question we're, we're bringing up, but at this moment, that's, I think probably the most I can say about your question, Paul, as I understand it, but I'm so maybe not. it's like, maybe it's like this, maybe like if Greg's right, that there is not this like fundamental duality between spirituality and materiality. It's that everyone experiences this process through purgatory, et cetera, et cetera. But 
the divine dispensation that Dante is given is he is allowed to um, observe it in like somewhat of an objective way or a poetic way. First first hand in air quotes. Yeah. And maybe like, there's like all sorts of levels of gray there where like some people don't have that special, you know, perspective at all, but then like some of us are a Mm -hmm. little bit more poetic in soul and we're able to like, you know, talk about it in a way that reaches towards Dante's way of talking about it, but it's not quite as good as Dante because of course we're not as good of poets, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I can kind of see that, but I don't know. It still feels like a bit of a reach at this point uh-huh. to me. Well, what do you think, or what do any of you think, uh, Dante, is it too far stretched to say that if we read this book, if we read this book in the right way as readers, we too are going on the pilgrimage and it's maybe not essentially different than the, the pilgrimage that Dante went on. I, I don't, I can't. Mm. The, and the reason is the reason. Is, well, and my question, my question is actually to be a little bit more specific and I'll let you talk, Greg, is that what Dante thinks? Like I am dubious of that claim myself, but is that the claim that Dante thinks the sort of Christian yeah. phenomenology of reading as a way towards salvation is really what I'm asking about. I, I don't think so because I think Dante thinks the way is suffering or is like somehow deeply tied to suffering. Uh, and I think that the problem with like the, the reason it's so physical in the story and, and so important to Dante is like, uh, like in some ways this the the book is more like a gate than the path it can show you things but 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 the so what you're the, saying is that dante the poet is like a guide yeah exactly it, uh-huh. like, this is this is a but that's not the same thing as as right. a, this is not the way right like uh-huh. like you you can't do the way without walking in mm-hmm. um and so there's no amount of reading this book will get you to heaven like no amount but it'll sure make your walk more illuminated, right? Yeah. Because right. like we're we're all gonna read this over the course of the next few months or whatever. So, well, more than that. But and we're gonna have these thoughts, we're gonna have these ideas in mind as we mm-hmm. experience our day-to-day reality. And in that sense, it is, yeah, it's very much like Virgil is acting in the in the text, right? Right. Dante will be there when we weep, but it will be us weeping and Uh not that will be what gets us there, not Dante. It is interesting though, because it's like (laughs) what is the what is the primary source of the fame of Dante and the legacy of this poem? Right. Is it like this is not like a devotional poem, you know what I mean? Like people that want to walk around with devotional thoughts in their mind or what it's like a little bit of of inspiration inspiration or or, yeah biblical exegesis or something they don't this is not something that they read i don't as as far as i'm as far as i know you know what i mean i this poem exists in our culture anyway as a poem first in the epic tradition way more than it exists as like a piece of christian apology yeah, in in our culture, but the the question is, how is Dante the poet writing this? And I don't think it's an apology in the sense of trying to prove the existence of God, but I do think 
Uh, apology yeah. is not the right word. Uh, like a like a Christian devotional or like a guide to salvation or something. Right? I don't I know quite what I mean, but like I do, I do think I do think it is something like a guidebook. I think that's how Dante intended it. And uh, it's not Saint John of the Cross. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, I think it's closer to Saint John of the Cross than you do, probably. But just in terms of Dante's intention, and we can read it however we want, right? But, but Dante's dead. <laughs> you can't say otherwise. <laughs> But in terms of his intention, I mean, you know, I just read the whole thing a couple months ago. Mm-hmm. That's my sense, but we'll have to see how the, the text bears it out. I think just to follow up, I mean, I think in, in, in my qualification, I meant really seriously, again, again, this is just how Dante the poet intended the poem. But my qualification, if read rightly, it, it the poem too can be a pilgrimage, right? And if so, if the journey that this poem is about Hear me out, Greg. If the journey that this poem is about is chiefly a spiritual one, which we have not resolved either way at this point, right? Then in principle, there's no reason that that Dante couldn't intend it, couldn't intend the reading of it to replicate the the essentials of his pilgrimage. No, I mean that's I think that's fine. I I mean I don't disagree that that's what Dante thought. It just seems yeah. real weak. I mean, it's just not the same to go through physical suffering as it is to just like encounter it in a book. Like that's just, that's just, that's just not the case. And like maybe physical suffering is just not an issue in this book, but it doesn't, that doesn't seem true yet. Yeah. We'll have to track it. These are I think questions. we're really hitting though on, on why this work is a narrative work. Cause maybe the, the non physical like if, I'm really tied to this guy. I'm going to take the physicalist stance all the way to the grave um, and then back again in the second and third ring of hell, wherever I'm trapped. The, the, um, the alternative to my physicalist stance is there something like Dante's commitment is completely narrative where, where he feels like a truth can only be disseminated through character and through setting and through description time Uh, time is the important part time yeah Yeah. because he's looking back right yeah yeah retroactive right yeah yeah that's well that's that's super modern all this retroactive stuff yeah something like like that like narrative is really what life is more like which is why the bible is a narrative for the most part at least the gospels than um something like either dialectic or treatise minerva only flies at dawn greg i don't feel like that's very modern (laughs) no i'm I'm kidding i'm kidding i'm using hegel's interpretation of that (laughs) i know i know I thought Greg just left the uh, chat. <laughs> That's I it. Did. I'm out of here. <laughs> I'm on, you guys won't stick with my insane, complete physicalist reading that he's a non-dualist. We've got, pure. we've got, we've got 30 weeks to duke it out. Yeah. I'm actually, yeah, I, I've, I developed this 10 minutes ago, and I'm completely committed to it. Completely. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, I, but I think that you, we'll, you, we'll, Greg, like any good dogmatist, Greg, <laughs> you have the requisite love to make it to heaven. I'm sure of it. Uh-huh, we'll see. Uh-huh. Um, the 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 flip side uh, like i want to develop this narrative thing more too because the i think the biggest problem with the physicalist reading is that virgil knows he didn't actually go to hell and so if virgil knows he didn't actually go to hell 
that that troubles the physicalist reading deeply. You mean Dante? Sorry, Dante. Yeah, okay. Virgil also, but the, the, Dante Virgil also knew that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's something about like I don't think so. I mean, I, I, well, depends on how strong you think the, the role of faith is here. But I mean, like that's an easy there's an easy fix for that problem within the, the sphere of theology. I'd say. Yeah, because you're saying his faith is strong enough. So he, like, like I say, he's got this completely physicalist, like, you know, everyone's going to die and then we're going to get up on judgment day and it's going to be our bodies. And mm-hmm. We take our bodies everywhere. Um, and I, I was, was going to say, I was like, that's what I, I think. think I mean, yeah. the, the resurrection of the body, that's, that is how the Christ, early Christians set themselves apart from the Gnostics, right? That's, Paul says that, right? In a twinkling of an eye, right, our bodies will be changed, but we keep them. That's that's totally conventional sort of Christianity that Dante would be drawing on. That's that's what I'm saying. It's he's arguing like I I don't think that I like these souls aren't ghosts to me at all. Um, they're much more. I know they're lighter because they've lost life, but they, they're not. They're way, they're way more real no, than ghosts. I mean, they're how do they die though? Like I mean, isn't the fundamental <laughs> fact of having a body is that you die? Sure, they die, but like if you look at a dead body, like that, that's a deeply physical reality, especially if you interact with it, right? Um, and I think he's his idea. But it doesn't go. It doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't move anymore. It's mm-hmm. st- set there unless someone else acts on it. That's that's how. Do, how is that? I, I just don't understand how afterlife stuff can involve body. That is a deeply troubling idea to me. But but it's it's like um, it's like demons in the wood. Paul it's just because you don't you don't have a sense of it's an an uh, an other barrier so like for you the ground is like just dirt all the way down whatever the hell it is but like like for them it's like when you put something out of sight it's it's different rules apply for it right like every culture is like this they've got like little you know well why did the thing move what's because something skirted it around and if you put a body into a liminal space i they gotta believe it acts differently that's why you put it at where no one can see it because once it's over there, it's going to get up and do its own thing. Well, I think, I think we need to return to this question once we've gotten into hell and we get to see the sinners and their sufferings. And, and yeah, I think Dante will think a lot about the exact nature of mm-hmm. the material in quotes, the bodies in quotes in hell, but I don't think we have enough grist. I don't think we have enough reading to really <laughs> say more. Yeah. I think, you know, it's important for Greg to to hold this physicalist position because he has to keep himself safe from that that fate which we read in Canto Three. You know, of, uh-huh. of if you don't hold a position, you will just be tormented by the fact that you can't go to hell, and you can't go to heaven, you can't I'll, go anywhere. I'll regret forever I didn't bring it up the other every <laughs> other time we met. We did we didn't really talk about this, but the Canto Three thing of the of the people that made no commitment anyway and therefore they're just they've made nothing of themselves it's actually a really great sort of uh great warning is the right word but it speaks to the some modern temptations particularly well oh, uh, it's, yeah. it's deeply existential too yeah I mean, that's <laughs> to not commit is to fully commit to something you don't want to commit to but it's yeah, um it's good this it, i don't remember where this is exactly in the new testament but isn't there a verse about the lukewarm Oh yeah, he just so, spits the lukewarm out of his mouth. It's, in, it's in, in Revelations because you're neither hot nor cold. I will spit you out of your mouth, out of my mouth. Yeah. It was a very weird passage. 
you can cut this out, Adam, but it's like Democrats. <laughs> uh, keep that in, Adam. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. Um, anything else to say? I thought this was a good conversation. Yeah, no, this is covered a lot of ground here. Excited to read this with you guys. This text is so rich. <laughs> it's gonna be quite a um it's an interesting journey for on our part. Our journey is going to be interesting. I don't know if it's going to lead us to salvation, but um one thing that I was thinking and when Greg was talking about narrative is that the really when you get into the paradisio, it's like the narrative really falls away, you know. It's like the narrative. I I'm possibly this was intentional, I don't know, but the, there's a much stronger narrative structure in hell. And then it kind of dissipates in the purgatorio and then it like essentially vanishes in paradisio. I mean, there's, you know, you're really in a little theological disputation or some, not even disputation, but just like theological explanation at that point. I think that's true, but I don't, I don't think his commitment to the sense, to the sensible drops out. Like, I think that that, like the, the sheer sensibility of every intellectual truth, Mm -hmm. I think persists. That could be true. All right, we gotta wrap this up. We didn't talk thank, about one minute. Thank you for joining. <laughs> thank you for joining us in the Quixotic quest for the key to all mythologies. So next week we'll be reading uh, Cantos four through six mm-hmm. in the Hollander translation of the Inferno. Good night. Thank you. Good night. Good night.